Hi, this is Natalia Toker, founder of Upskill Me, and you're listening to another episode on communication in the world of startups, venture capital, asset management, and investment opportunities. Today we have a special guest, Tyra Jeffries, founder and CEO at Creative Cap Advisors from Chicago, Illinois. And we're going to be having a terrific conversation on communication for fund managers. Tyra runs a global advisory firm for hedge funds and asset managers. And recently she launched the first incubator for fund managers, where the first batch of the VCs will be heading towards a goal of $215 million of assets under management. Tyra. Welcome to the show. Can you please briefly introduce yourself? <laughs> yes. Well, first off, Natalia, thank you for the beautiful introduction. That was absolutely uh, a perfect depiction of who we are. So a little bit about myself. I So our firm, we've launched the world's first global emerging manager incubator. So I think that's sort of what we're best known for. Um, but we are also a Creative Path Advisors itself is a global business advisory firm. So we, for asset managers, and we work with asset managers on a variety, uh, in a variety of different ways. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have three different core divisions. We have our strategic communications, we have our design services, and then we have our third, which is our newest, which includes business advisory and corporate strategy. So really what we look to tackle within our organization is focusing on a myriad of ways to help fund managers to not only carve out their niche within the global or even within the regional marketplace, but really help them to evolve as a fund business. Mm-hmm. And when you say the world's first incubator for fund managers, you can definitely find a lot more online, a lot more organizations and incubators like this. How exactly are you different from all the other incubators for fund managers? Yeah, so there's been a, there's been a handful of incubators that have tackled maybe just hedge funds. You know, there's, I believe it was Capria that tackled more on the emerging market side. But for us, we're a global, we're, we say we're first because we are, the, really the first of its kind where we've integrated all different types of alternative asset managers into one program. So we have, you know, within our recent cohort, we just announced our fall 2018 class and we have venture capital, love only, and hedge fund. So even within, you know, a, a fairly small class, we still have an extreme amount of diversity. And, you know, it, it's really quite interesting in working with, you know, funds on both ends, because I think at the end of the day, each person coming into the program, they have a fantastic background in managing a portfolio and a high level of integrity. But for many, this is their first entrepreneurial venture. So mm-hmm. it's not only understanding how to build a portfolio, but it's also tackling the issue of how do I build a business? And that's a lot of what this incubator goes to, to tackle, but it also does it on a global scale. And we want it to be global because we knew that this was not just a global, this was not just a you know US issue. This was not just Uh, a European issue or, you know, Mm -hmm. really any other part of the world. So that's why we made it global because in our experience in dealing with different managers from around the world, really from anywhere from Asia to Latin America, Europe, United States, and and recently Canada, that I spoke to a manager last Mm -hmm. week from Canada, you know, really figuring out how do I build a fun business in today? Now, each region is obviously going to have different compliance and regulation, regulatory restrictions, but on a whole, really understanding how to build a business is what they all have as a common thread. 
from which countries are your participants today in the incubator? Yeah, so one is from London and then the rest are US based. But we did receive applications from Asia, from all different parts of Europe, and then in the US. So we really, in going through the entire application process, mm -hmm. we wanted to just really look at the, the quality of the product. Uh, so, you know, in talking to different allocators, and one of the questions they would pose to us is, you know, within your program, do you have any sort of diversity initiatives? That's always, you know, becoming more and more popular, at least it's, especially with the US-based allocators. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've been asked, you know, what percentage of them is, you know, of your, of your class are women, what percentage, uh, you know, falls in the diversity category. So, you know, and, and we say, really, we just look at the quality of the product and we were able to have a phenomenal class. So we have right mm -hmm. now out of the five within our cohort, we have two of the five are run by women. We have two of the five are minority. So one of them mm -hmm. is from, you know, Saudi Arabia. And then another is um, of Indian descent, actually born in India and moved to the United States. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can even look at it from the angle, even though the predominance is U.S. based funds, the actual people running them are mm -hmm. not you know, American born. So it's really quite interesting from different angles and looking yeah. at our class. The business has become an extremely international today, and that's what is fascinating to me personally because most of the participants today are non-native speakers, and this communication issue becomes even more, uh, I would say, crucial. Become, um, right. How do you create all these opportunities? I looked into your incubator and into your company in a lot of detail. Thank you, by the way, for the invitation to be the mentor for some of your VCs. But the, what I really like about your incubator, and I think what sets you apart, what's your value proposition, is that it's not just a three-month incubator program and then, okay, do whatever you want, the program is over. But it really resonates with how I approach my business, my own business. And I coach on people, startups, uh, executive teams, sales teams, marketing teams, on public speaking and communication. And it's not just a five-week course and after five weeks you're done. No, you're ready when you're ready. And I always give people time until they arrive at their own results. And everybody travels at their own pace. So you cannot really make everybody accomplish everything you want them to accomplish in a certain limited period of time. And I think this is also what sets you apart because the goal is not just to finish a three-month course, right? And to do everything on the curriculum, but to reach a certain target. Right, yeah. So... You know, in, in operating within the fund business, it's, I mean, there's similarities in the sense when you look at just a, a regular, let's say, tech startup, e-commerce startup, they're all trying to build a business, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, there are certain restrictions and there's just operating within the fund management environment is not, is very different still. And, and because of that, that's why we didn't want to say, you know, three months only because in reality, you know, we know it takes funds to you know six months to 18 months to raise oh, yeah. their first I did. capital i took so, active right active role in fundraising i know it takes a lot more i mean you have to plan at least six months but it doesn't always right. happen in six months right 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 exactly i mean because you have a more stringent due diligence process i mean you know when you're investing millions tens of millions hundreds of millions or billions into a company yeah. you're not going to make a decision within one week That's you know right. it's time to evaluate not only the founder, but also whether or not this fund fits into the portfolio of the investor. So in looking at all of that and understanding that, that's why we didn't want to say 
only three months because, you know, let's be honest, that's just not a reality within our industry. I mean, there wouldn't be the level of value that we were hoping to achieve if we only did three months. So that's why we put a hard target of saying, you know, once you've reached 250 million USD AUM, then you would be able to graduate out of the program. But we've, we've had so much interest of, you know, having this program even in excess of that, because as you know, we both know mm. being an emerging manager means anywhere from zero and, you know, zero dollars in assets to $2 billion dollars mm-hmm. in assets. So it really depends on who you're talking to when you're identifying, you know, what defines an emerging manager. And so, you know, in my experience, I've worked with different types of allocators who look at emerging managers, but in reality, they only look at funds who are 300 million to 2 billion, but that is still technically an emerging manager. So, but, you know, there are also day one capital providers, which is in Cedars and accelerators. So there's a, the network is def, you know, is becoming much more robust mm-hmm. as emerging managers are, you know, becoming more preferential to many different types of investors just because if you look at the alpha generation that are yielded by, you know, smaller managers. But, you know, what's particularly interesting is that we're in an era now where, you know, outsourcing is becoming more rampant. So managers are able to have a greater opportunity of success, but that it still doesn't mean that the marketplace is not competitive. It's still incredibly competitive. And so the hard cap is 250 million under assets under management, right? Yes, that's for this program. We've already been, um, we've already had conversations with other investors who are interested in, you know, 250 million to, you know, half a billion or 1 billion, because we definitely have investors in our network who look at emerging managers, but don't look at them until they're past that threshold. Mm -hmm. So we're also assessing, you know, as we grow this program, having something sort of as a next step. You have received applications from funds and asset managers from all over the world, and your clients are also quite international. If you look at them all, what do you think, what quality characteristics do fund managers need to have to reach that hard uh, target? What is that key ingredient or quality that they should develop in order to stand out in this highly competitive market? And what maybe that's going to be your focus in the incubator program? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone always says performance. I mean, you know, the performance is incredibly important because mm-hmm. you are a portfolio manager. So, you know, it's important that you have that. But what I've realized is, you know, really integrity. Integrity mm-hmm. is something that is not, you don't see in every single manager. And in a lot of conversations I've had with large allocators, and so, I'm, and when I mean large allocators, those who carry an AUM of in excess of, you know, one to five billion in, you know, capital to out to put to work, they, you know, they've expressed to me many times, you know, they'll say, we like to manage, we like their strategy, but honestly, the person, <laughs> it was the issue. Yeah, you know, they yeah. didn't have very high level of integrity, we didn't trust them, and I think when people forget that when you're partnering with an LP, that trust is the cornerstone of that relationship. And if that is not there, an LP is not going to feel comfortable moving forward and giving you millions or even billions of dollars exactly. down the road. 
that's that's what I see a lot actually sometimes the product is amazing you read the presentation you see the pitch and then you meet the person and the person's actually the problem you <laughs> you realize that you can't work with this person long term you can't trust the person there's no integrity or the communication is either too aggressive or it's just not happening and people are not listening so all this sometimes bad communication kills really amazing products and that's fascinating Right. And, and you see, and you see that more and more. So in my experience of dealing with a lot of different types of emerging managers, you know, I, I've seen a, a significant increase of ways to build their brand more than ever was probably before, because I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember, but managers used to just have essentially a splash page with their logo and, <laughs> you know, just their, Uh, telephone number and mm -hmm. and now you see a much more a, a different approach than used to be where you see more thought leadership pieces coming out mm -hmm. I even had a manager send me a book that they published of all their different investor letters you mm -hmm. know so there's they're doing a lot more on that side so it's and as a you know an IR person at heart it, it definitely is wonderful to see that managers are becoming more open with communication Because a lot of investors, it's great for them to be able to understand how you think, exactly. you know, how you invest. So to have more color is only going to create more value for you as a manager. It's funny that we're talking about now communication and integrity and trust. And these are more people skills and really understanding how people think. It's not really about finance right. or, or company management or anything. It's, it's really people skills and EQ and empathy. Do you believe that this is what fund managers today should invest in developing those oh, skills. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, having, you know, if you illustrate to an investor that you're an individual that they can trust and you can really have an open conversation with them, because I mean, by definition, they are a partner. I mean, LP, yeah, yeah limited, but <laughs> you know, they're still technically a partner. So you want to be able to have and have that conversation with them and engage them in a way that makes them want to work with you long term. So, and as a, a facet of that is that, is the EQ, you know, mm -hmm. is having that level of understanding that you're also dealing with, it's a people business. Exactly. So understanding that is, is also very important, important. It's not just building a portfolio. It's not just building an institutional quality business. It's understanding that you are bringing on someone as a partner to your business to work together and grow together. Thank you for confirming my, my findings as well, because I coach uh, a lot of um, senior executives and top managers. And I remember one guy who owns a number of companies, he told me, um, he, he told me what, he's responsible for signing contracts with um, big corporations. And he says, he told me, companies don't really buy from companies. It's people who buy from people. So when I'm about to sign a contract, a contract with a company, I look at the person and I ask myself, It's an annual contract. Okay, am I ready to spend the next year working hand in hand with that person or not? <laughs> It's a year, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time with this person, that, you know, throughout the next year or maybe two years. Or if it's a three year contract, you know, it's even a more serious consideration. So in B2B sales, that's an issue. But when it comes to to fund managers and uh, private equity and, and investment, people trust you with their money. And it's not just a game for one year. It's a lot longer. Right. Definitely. So that's why it's, 
you know, it's even though it is B2B, it's still people, you know, exactly. people find that. So it's important to have that relationship. How do you think, what do you think is, um, is crucial for startups to consider if they want to carve out their value? How do they position themselves? Okay, people skills, that's definitely, you know, it has to be there. They need to invest in developing their people skills, empathy, and understanding how their clients think. But what can help fund managers position themselves better to their clients and investors? Yeah, I think the at a very basic level, what a, many fund managers tend to miss out on is they do a one-size-fits-all approach in mm-hmm. pitching to an investor. And that only hurts you. And when you are pitching to a pension fund, it's very different than pitching to a family office. Oh, yeah. So understanding your audience. And I think you (laughs) probably also really get that. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Many times fund managers use the same pitch or the same presentation Mm -hmm. and go to the keys without really understanding what an investor likes to invest in. Mm -hmm. You know, if you understand their their investment philosophy, you know, their investment threshold, you're going to be significantly more successful. If you are targeting an investor, let's say you're a $10 million or even a $20 million manager, and you're targeting an investor who has distinct preferences that they don't want to invest in a fund where they're less than 10%, but their minimum threshold of investment is, you know, 50 million, then in reality, there's just no way that that relationship can work. So sometimes you see also a lot of managers pitching to investors that frankly are just not within their wheelhouse. Even though it's always fantastic to build a relationship with an investor, you know, as an emerging manager, and especially if you're less than a hundred million in AUM, mm-hmm. you know, you're gonna probably be burning through capital quickly. So you also wanna understand how to time manage when you're pitching to different investors and ensure that the investor that you're looking to meet with and pitch to is actually interested in your strategy aside from you know the types of you know products that you or the types of securities that you invest in but also looking at the fact that you know can this investor really come on board at with me at this size or is this a conversation that it's just nice to have now and maybe they can invest mm-hmm. you know in a couple of years so really identifying how to pitch yourself to the right kinds of investors exactly i think i can add two things here so yeah problem number one is that they pitch to the wrong people and they cannot identify who potentially can be their client. But the other problem is that they, if this is a fund manager, if this is a young fund looking for investors, sometimes they pitch the same story over and over again, even to the clients who can potentially be their clients and their investors, but they never improve on their mistakes and they do not correct their pitch. So they simply pitch the same story to as many people as possible without collecting feedback and improving uh, their pitch based on the feedback. I see that a lot, to be honest. Right. And unfortunately, you know, with investors, they're meeting with so many different managers, so they're not going to always be able to provide you that feedback, which is so crucially important for these managers who are going through mm-hmm. these meetings. But but I think the, the problem, and the second thing I wanted to say is connected to what you just outlined. 
why people do not provide feedback because there is no trust and because probably there is not enough interest. The other problem that I see a lot is that people want to pitch their idea and they kind of force people to listen to their pitch. But, uh, you know, you pitching is easy to me, but getting to a point when you're invited to pitch, that's the most difficult part. So they, they pitch and it's all about me, 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 I'm going to change the world. We have an amazing product. Look at us, invest in us. But there is zero interest in a person listening, in a person sitting in front of them. And, and these people, when they feel that you're only interested in their bank account information and you're not interested in them, well, certainly they're not going to provide any feedback. They'll politely say, thank you, goodbye, we'll, we'll talk to you later or we'll send us an email. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, it's really important that managers understand that you're trying to get into an investor's portfolio. You know, of course, investors are looking for different ideas that would integrate well for them to create, you know, a wonderfully diverse and profitable portfolio. But at the same time, I mean, when as an investor, it can become very overwhelming when you have people, you know, say me, 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 me. But also a lot of managers are operating off of lack of benchmarking information. So they may not know how to properly pitch themselves um, because they frankly don't know what their peers are doing. So they sort yeah. of operate off of understanding that what they're doing is correct. <laughs> so yeah. you also see that too. So unfortunately, um, you know, you can't always get feedback, but it's always useful to, you know, practice what you're mm -hmm. pitching to other people, you know, even yeah. if they're not necessarily in the industry, it'll, it'll get you more comfortable and, and get you the feedback that you need, because it could just be, you know, how you're pitching. It may not necessarily be, you know, the content um, within your presentation, not always, but you know, it could just be that you're not really selling someone on your strategy because you haven't illustrated the value that you're bringing to their particular portfolio and that really goes back to what i was saying before about really research who you're meeting with and who you're mm -hmm. pitching to if you want to be successful communication is it's not just a soft skill anymore it's really becoming a fundamental skill for any business and i think fundamentally for for startups and for for fund managers um, skills that they can really manage and I see they can help a lot of teams is number one don't pitch to clients really pitch to people as you said try to see people instead of simply clients or potential right. clients and also many teams need to learn to be okay with the fact that people don't buy because they right. don't buy to, they don't buy today they might come back to you in six months if you're able to keep the relationship going but a lot of teams and they are bluntly, you know, just pushing people away. Okay, you're not going to buy next, <laughs> next, yeah, next, right. next investor. And they simply forget about the person. They don't follow up. They don't keep in touch uh, because they're not interested in the person. They're just interested in their momentarily opportunity to invest. That's it. And this is what ruins the relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And <laughs> that is so very true. It, it's, it's very important to, like we said, like we were both saying, understand that it's a, a people business at the end mm -hmm. of the day and understand, you know, who are you pitching to and, and really try to understand them. Because at the end of the day, you know, investors are looking, you know, for something unique and something different yeah. to integrate into their portfolio when it makes sense. You know, obviously sometimes investors may meet with managers, um, you know, just to collect ideas. Sometimes they'll meet with them. Um, 
to, you know, further discuss if in the back of their mind they're looking to redeem yeah. from a fund and, and want to put that money toward quickly. So, you know, there's just there's just a variety of different things going on. And for, for funds, they really, you know, need to understand who they're yeah. pitching. But more than unique products, I think investors are looking for unique people who show integrity because products come and go. But if you see that the person shows integrity and you can reach out to them and, 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 and they're available for a long time, you know, um, you can buy something else from that person. You will listen to them. So. Right, right. And, and you want to have trust with that founder, first and yeah. foremost. So like, just like you're saying, you know, product is important. But, you know, you really have to look at the person behind the product and can they execute and can they grow this business? Mm -hmm. Because it is a business that they're investing in. It's not only, you know, you're not a trader anymore. You're not just a portfolio manager at a huge institution. You're now an actual business. Mm -hmm. Exactly. When I used to do fundraising, I mean, I pitched, my, I pitched to so many people and not all of them bought. But thanks to that, I have an amazing network of investors now and we communicate still. And they invested some time later in different products and it's just an amazing relationship. So the fact that someone didn't invest immediately doesn't mean anything. If you, right. if you are able to gain great relationships, that's, that's the biggest gain, I think. Right. I, you know, I've always thought, to be honest, that um, startups, especially founders, should never delegate the passion towards their product to someone else and they should never delegate communication and pitching to someone else. But what you do is you do investment relation, investor relations for funds. Why do you think it's important or why do, why do funds need to outsource investor relations? Maybe it's more reasonable to train their own internal team to do that. It's just a very interesting business model that you have. Can you explain how you came up with this and why this is a working solution? Yeah, because investor relations as a function has been developing only within, you know, just like a handful of years. So I came up with it because I had been coming across so many portfolio managers who just frankly were not, didn't know how to interact well with investors. So the investor relations function, you know, by definition mm -hmm. is there really to help of the, they strengthen the relationship between a fund and the investor. And, you know, def, you know, we want the senior management to be a part of that process for sure. You know, access to senior management is critically important for investors, mm -hmm. but also, you know, creating a program where you can institute best practices within a fund, you know, things that a lot of funds frankly aren't fully aware of how to do or how to execute. You know, they understand that, okay, I have to have a relationship with my investor because they're obviously investing in me, but what does that really look like? And mm -hmm. so that's why having an outsource function is, you know, of tremendous value because it helps you to work with, you know, the institutions that are pushing your business forward, you know, the, that are injecting capital into your fund. And if you can't manage that relationship, you're probably not going to last very long unless you're independently wealthy. Uh, let's say you do investor relations for a fund. What exactly would you do for the fund, for the emerging fund? And how many people from your team would be involved? Yeah, so it really depends on the type of engagement. So if a, man so if a manager is going on a roadshow, 
you know, we do, we also integrate some media strategy around that. So we have people within our team that can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and preparing um, for that road show. If we're looking just general, you know, outsource management where, you know, they want some help managing their current investors and their, and they want to evolve from simply just having a fun admin, you know, we'll also interact and help on that side when it comes to, you know, discovering ways to elevate that relationship or when an, an, a fund manager is looking to other regions to pitch towards managers. Sometimes you'll see funds over in Europe looking to access the American mm-hmm. marketplace of capital or the U.S. funds looking to access the European or, you know, sort of anywhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. So looking at elevating you know, their program for those types of investors. And what does that look like? And, you know, how do we institute the right types of systems to, you know, engage and get those investors on board with us? Because obviously when you're pitching high net worth individuals or ultra high net worth individuals, it's very different um, than, you know, having a pension fund as an investor Mm -hmm. or having, you know, a a large asset manager fund of funds as an investor. So you have to create a more sophisticated level of processes in order to further engage those types of investors. And that's one thing um, I actually wrote about in HFM week was about transitioning from friends and family capital to institutional capital. And why is this transition happening? What do you think? Well, it's a, it's a it's a natural part of the process. So when you go out and launch a fund, your first you know act is sort of is to you know raise capital from your own network. So mm-hmm. friends, yeah, that's right. As you evolve and grow, you know that's unless you have incredibly wealthy individuals around mm-hmm. you, you're probably going to go outside of that, yeah. and you're going to start pitching institutions, so family offices mm-hmm. and fund of funds and pension funds and endowments and you know any a variety or investment consultants so and it's a whole different ball game in transitioning to not only those types of investors but also targeting people who are outside your network who don't have an already embedded level of trust in you so in a nutshell the work that you do for a fund is extending the number of clients uh, and pitching to institutional investors and also expanding their uh, fund, helping them expand their fund to other geographical locations, right? Right. It's really about helping them transition to becoming an actual sizable business. But do, so you, when, do you actually pitch for them or do they have to pitch themselves? No, they pitch themselves. We don't, you know, sit next mm-hmm. to them. <laughs> That's a whole other level of service that we don't do. We're more, as we sort of say, we're more behind the scenes. So we'll train you, mm-hmm. you know, we'll help you institute best practices, you know, we'll introduce you, um, you know, to any sort of the right parties, such as, you know, third-party service providers. A lot of times, you know, we've had conversations where managers are trying to figure out, you know, who is really the right partner for them, you know, so mm-hmm. in terms of mix of value and cost. So we'll, we'll do that as well. Um, really, at a very base level, what we're providing, the value that we offer, is helping managers to get to that next level. Because, you know, they're saying, okay, I've raised capital from my friends and family. What's mm. next? Okay, I'll call Creative Cap Advisor <laughs> and they'll uh, help us with that, you know. 
Cool. And and when you train the fun teams and when you help them get to the next level, you probably see how they communicate with their existing clients, how they pitch and you I mean, have you done the analysis? Do you know why what stops them from going from moving to the next level? It's just lack of resources, lack of competences and what are the common mistakes that they do even within their network of investors, their friends and family? What prevents them yeah. to, to go to the next level? Yeah, so it's, it's so funny you ask me this because this is part of what our scorecard goes to tackle. So we've developed this proprietary tool that we have integrated into our incubator program where we've effectively built for them a roadmap and illustrated to them on their level of future success. Mm-hmm. And there's over a hundred, there's, no, there's exactly a hundred different plugins in this scorecard <laughs> looking at everything from, you know, the actual portfolio to the risk management of them, that to operations, to the founder's level of, you know, integrity, to looking at the team, how they're building a team. So there's all these different things that are coming into play and will allow us and also allow the managers to see, you know, who will be successful because I've been doing this long enough to be able to Honestly, to be able to quickly see, you know, who is really going to go the distance and who isn't. But really, the characterization of someone who will end up doing well tends, you know, tends to be, you know, they're very ambitious. They want to build a business and they want to have a relationship with their investors. Well, let's try to, if we try to summarize uh, for the startups and fund managers that are listening right now, for those who are ambitious and want to go to the next level, what should they pay attention to go to that next level? Maybe a few highlights from your hundred um, points that you know are in- crucially important. Um, really, if, if funds want to evolve and go to the next level, it's really about having the right systems in place. Mm-hmm. And I know for funds, this is something they probably hear all the time. And, you know, they'll say, well, it's going to cost me a lot and I need to get an investor to do that, you know. And I think there's an understanding, you know, I think pretty quickly when you're getting into the fund business and building a fund that it is not an inexpensive proposition. So, mm-hmm. you know, and for investors, they want to feel comfortable putting money into a business that has the right systems. That's right. So at a very base level, aside from having integrity as a founder, you also want to ensure that you have dedicated the time and the investment into the right types of partners. So, you know, if an investor will come across, let's say, and you have a very bad, you know, not attractive fund admin or if you're a hedge fund and you don't really have a very attractive, you know, prime broker. I mean, they look at those things. Those things are important. Do you have to have, you know, the most expensive and the best in the market? No, not necessarily, but you definitely need to have someone that can do the job very well. Mm-hmm. It has to so be having, yeah, it has to be convenient for the clients in the first place. So clients need to enjoy that. It doesn't have to be the most expensive. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost like you need to put together a report and say, you know, how much is the cost to create a fun business in the first year? Because it is not cheap. It is not cheap at all. Um, but these are things that are requirements um, mm-hmm. a lot of times for investors. And depending upon the type of strategy you're running and, you know, the level of capital intensity, you know, they're also looking at that as well. And it doesn't mean that someone can't do well if you are, you know, perhaps not an independently wealthy person, if you have a partner that can help you push that forward, 
or whatnot. But at the end of the day, you know, running a fun business, there's certain expectations when you're transitioning from friends and family mm-hmm. capital to once you start hitting the institutional marketplace. And I think that's very important for funds yeah. to understand. I agree. I also strongly believe that you start, you need to start investing in relationships way before you start investing into the admin stuff, into the technical right. characteristics and, and, and everything that has to be there uh, for the client, all the technical stuff, you know, but investing in relationship way, way early really helps because when you are ready, you have clients. When you are ready in terms of technical equipment and, and admin and everything, and then it's too late to start looking for clients. <laughs> right, right, you know, so I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you look at it, you want to have a good experience. I guess if I were to simply put it, uh, you know, if you're going to a salon, you know, obviously men go to salons too, mm-hmm. but if you're going to go to a salon, you obviously want to go to a salon where your experience is going to be better. You know, it's cleaner. They have nice products and they have all of these mm-hmm. things. You know, not everyone's going to have that, but have at least at a base level because as a customer, when you come in, your impression of that business is going to be more positive. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So, look at those sort of things. So even if you liken it to that, and I think sometimes when people put it into perspective and say, you know, would you want to go to a salon that was, you know, falling apart and is dirty and, you know, doesn't, <laughs> do you trust these people to clean your hair? No. <laughs> yeah. So every, yeah, everything needs to be there. I always look at the quality of the service first. Like, right. you know, even the, the most, like the high-end restaurants, especially if the service is bad, it's not a high-end restaurant anymore, even if the food is delicious. So <laughs> um, if I were to like to summarize for startups who are listening, if I, I would say uh, you really need to invest early in relationships and do not hurry because a lot of startups, they hurry to raise and they have these crazy deadlines and, you know, they, they don't pay attention to anything else and they don't see people. They only see their deadlines. They're so short of time. So you never right. can, relationships don't really have a deadline. Uh, relationships don't have an agenda. And right. uh, a lot of startups need to really understand that. You cannot hurry when you're trying to build a relationship. Otherwise, it's not going to work out. And you're trying to build long-lasting relationship anyway. And another thing, uh, a lot of startups really think that communication is easy. It's something we do every day. Everybody can talk, right? So we kind of train every day. So it's not worth paying attention to. And I've seen so many times when startups... um, just don't get ready for it at all. It's like, you know, students right before the exam, they get ready for an exam the night before the exam. (laughs) So when they have to pitch their product, they invest a lot more time in beautiful slides, aligning the slides, beautiful pictures, presentation, numbers, and almost never they invest in actually actually practicing how they're going to pitch and what they're going to say to that person. And when they get up on stage, let's say if they speak at an event or a conference or when they sit down in front of the investor, then comes the moment when they realize, oh, my God, it's not as easy as I thought. (laughs) And when they get a video of them talking, because every conference organizers tend to record them, then the realization comes that it's not that easy. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. So, you know, you definitely want to practice pitching, but you also want to make sure you're pitching in a way that has 
illustrated to them best way you've done your research and of that course, you understand yes. what their preferences are and that you're positioning yourself in this way, you know, as I say, position yourself for success. And, and that'll definitely make you much more successful if you're going into the meeting and understand already as much as you can, because I'll, you yeah, know, yeah. it's not always readily available, but understand as much as you can about the person you're meeting with so you can have a more productive meeting. Yeah, definitely. You know, when I'm interested in a person, I... I don't talk about myself normally. I shut up and listen. <laughs> and, and a lot of startups, when they when they start a meeting, they they start a meeting with a question. So, have you seen my presentation? And it's just the most terrible way you can start a meeting. <laughs> and they talk about themselves and never about the investor because they don't right. even ask what the investor is interested in because every investor, every normal investor, is interested in long lasting relationship and clear exit strategies. And then right. they never talk about it. <laughs> right. You know, so and I think, and also on the private equity side, there's, you know, a lot, there's much more significant preferences to you see and the types of investors and the types of strategies they want to, mm-hmm. you know, do whether it's, you know, Can you elaborate on that more? What would be the preferences on this? So if we want to help startups understand their investors more, so I just mentioned a couple, right? Like relationships, exit strategy. What else do investors pay attention in different kinds of funds? Um, because we have we, we have crypto funds today and you, you deal with them as well. You have all different sorts of funds. So what yeah. are preferences and criteria for them when they choose where to invest? I would say aside from an investor already having an inherent preference to a certain type of strategy, mm-hmm. definitely operations and process. Mm-hmm. Um, also the senior management team you know is the person who's leading the charge do they have the credentials or the experience to do so and you know I think that's that's very important for a lot of investors and I mean I've come across you know funds who may not have come from you know large firms and you know that's fine they're out there but at the end of the day you know is this someone who can really do what they say they can do Mm -hmm. you know so I think that's also critically important and do they you know, if they don't necessarily have the best experience as their partner or, you know, so there's a, a nice level of safety. I think when you're putting mm-hmm. that much money into a business, you want to make sure that, you know, the person knows how to execute, you know, what is their operations and what does their process look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And has language ever been an issue in, in all this global um, cooperation opportunities and um, because you're taking the business global you're talking to a lot of startups from all over the world and uh, probably many funds have international clients as well has language ever been an issue here in this communication process I think it's less <clears throat> I mean I think language is always going to be in a concern when it's not your native so if you're not a native English speaker and you know a huge, significant portion of capital, you know, if they're not native English speakers, they usually know how to converse in English. Um, I think that it, what I see, it's less about, you know, can you or can't you speak English, but it's more about how you speak. Exactly. You know, are you speaking in a way that not only resonates and illustrates your passion, but are you speaking clearly? Are you speaking yeah. concisely? Are you, you know, are you really illustrating what is unique about your fund? Not just, you know, we return X, Y, and Z, you know, um, we have an, an annual return of X, Y, and Z, you know, it's really about how you present, not just 
can you speak, you know, English or not? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. I think that's critically important because but, sometimes yeah. people who are nervous to speak, it shows, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, actually, that, that's actually what I meant. Not really if the problem is not whether you can or cannot speak English, but the problem that I see a lot is how people speak English. And right. uh, they are not sometimes the non-native speakers. And I work with a lot of non-native speakers. Either um, their accent prevents people from understanding them or they cannot formulate their message clearly or they're just too nervous because, again, they haven't yeah. practiced. And also because people, it, it's important to take into account some cultural uh, specifics you know for example Asia is so different if you want Asian investors and Asian clients the whole business culture is just different and right. you pitch in a different way and uh, relationship involves according to different scenarios not unlike in the US like Russians are very straightforward and they're very suspicious <laughs> also if you <laughs> yeah normally they're very suspicious with new people especially people who want their money <laughs> Americans are a little different. The people in Europe, Switzerland, and all the German parts, German-speaking part of Europe is also quite specific. I would say very different from Americans. And and yeah. like I've worked with so many, yeah. and every time it's fascinating to me how different people are and how different their expectations are. So I think somebody who masters this uh, expectations and somebody who can anticipate them has a really um, has a great advantage. Right. No, definitely. And I think, you know, and, and when you're meeting with people across different cultures, it's very important to be sensitive to that. You know, they're, at, you know, as an example, in my dealings with, you know, different types of cultures, there'll be certain requirements. If someone doesn't know you very well, unlike, you know, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say American culture necessarily, but, you know, you'll see they'll require more information from you because they just don't know you. And, yeah, you know, they time to get to know you, to really understand the person. And, you know, I've, I've worked just by way of experience. I've worked in Latin American cultures actively. I used to do on the private equity side, the deals um, between Mexico and Argentina. And, you know, I've, actively interacted with a lot of people throughout Europe and, you know, and, and some Asian markets as well. So I think it's critically important for people to understand when you're pitching to investors, how they like to be pitched to. And it can be a little difficult to find that out, but you know, if you do, you'll have a tremendous more amount of success than if you sort of just go with, you know, your culture style of pitching. Um, because everyone has different levels of understanding. And I think that's just about, you know, you, you learn that when you interact cross-culturally. And I think that that's very critically important, too, as you were mentioning. I mean, as you said, with Russians and so with Germans and Americans, <laughs> they don't do business necessarily the yeah, same. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they, they want to have the right information in front of them to make an educated decision on who they want to invest in. The most interesting difference between American and Russian approach to me is in, in America, as you said, they request more information because they want to understand what kind of person you are, right? So it's, it's important to uh, kind of get to know you on a personal level because if I'm comfortable having lunch with you, if I'm comfortable, comfortable having conversations with you, then I probably am going to be comfortable doing business together with you. In Russian, it's vice versa. We first do business. <laughs> we talk on the business. We first do business. If I see that you're not going to screw me, maybe we can be friends. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's different. It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, 
no, that's... <laughs> so yeah, I mean, everyone, you know, interacts differently. And I think it's, it's very important to understand that. But, it, you know, I think that would also be a great podcast. <laughs> you know, yeah. the world Cross-cultural you know. competences, yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully very soon. The next batch of your incubator program is going to be from all different places and uh, your funds are going to get clients worldwide as well, including Asia, Russia, Latin America and all the other interesting places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have an extensive investor network that spans everywhere. I mean, except except the continent of Africa. We haven't gotten that mm-hmm. yet, but we definitely will. <laughs> um, but we've had, we have, you know, people in Latin America, in North America, in Europe, in Asia Pacific. So we're very, very fortunate that we're, you know, can operate in this way where we have a huge network to pull from. One thing I want to ask is when is your incubator starting? When is, when is your first batch starting to work? Oh, they're, they're, well, they're, as you know, they're getting matched to their their mentors. Mm -hmm. So all of those calls are happening this week. Um, They're also going to be getting their scorecards. So that's what I was actually doing Uh uh, right before I I hopped onto the the podcast with you. So there's a lot going on. So there, there's, you know, and then we have our online content editor who's coming on board um, who's going to be working with us, doing a lot of different executive interviews and doing sort of fireside chats um, with people that we can then integrate into our premium content. And then we have some other partners as well that we haven't announced yet, but we're very excited to announce. Sounds amazing. Exciting. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I think a lot of people involved. It is. And I think one of the most exciting things about building this program is creating a mentor network that's not only mm-hmm. just about people from our industry. You know, we were able to get um, someone from Microsoft Accelerator and mm. want to have them because, you know, they've looked at all different types of businesses. So I think it's good that we integrate that into the learning process because for many fund managers, their biggest issue is building a business. Exactly. And, you know, we want to make sure that we have mentors that not only operate within our industry, but can provide some, you know, diversity of opinions. Yeah, what I like most about your incubator is that your focus is on the results so think talking about that what would be the first tangible result that you expect your first batch to receive yeah so they're going to have their scorecards so as they evolve and you know hit certain tests that we'll be giving them to illustrate their growth across certain areas that's going to be first and foremost. So they'll see their scorecard go up, so to speak. Um, so that's one result that they'll be able to notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also having the opportunity to meet with investors, you know, if they close deals that, you know, is a hard figure. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, are they going to meet, are they going to meet investors on your premises or how do you organize that or on their own? Yeah. So my team and I are in the process of developing the right mechanism to have that, but it's obviously going to have to be virtual given that we mm-hmm. have our incubators across the United yeah, States, yeah. San Francisco to New York, and then mm-hmm. we have someone in London. Um, but I think as we grow at the program and it further evolves that we will, you know, try to do something in person. I, mm-hmm. I think it's always best to do these types of things in person. Uh, know the preference is to work towards that but given you know and and we'll figure that out down the road you know so but definitely you know we want to do something in person is the ideal way to go about but first we're going to be doing it virtually so it'll be an opportunity to pitch and to present to investors Mm -hmm. 
Um, and and this will also be great for them because they'll have the opportunity to get in front of real investors and pitch their ideas and you mm-hmm. know see what they take the information they've learned from our program and integrate that into you know when they're going to pitch to investors. Right, and that should lead to and to the next tangible result, which is uh, which is two hundred and fifty million under management. Right, there's probably going to have to be a couple of pitches that you know I don't <laughs> yeah. think. It's- But the numbers, that's what I mean. The next tangible result is the numbers they're going to get. And the ultimate goal is to get right. 250 million exactly. assets the under management. Is, yeah, exactly. The ultimate goal is to reach that $250 million dollar figure. So that's why we say there are multiple opportunities mm-hmm. to pitch to investors. Because also, as you grow your fund, you're going to you know have more types of investors open to you. You know, If you're a $10 million dollar fund, you know once you get yeah. to about 50 or 100 million, you have an entirely new network of investors who will look at you and be That's ready right. to look at you. That's right. So you know, there's there's that as well. And, and we have those. We have everyone from the day one capital providers to the, you know, even, like I said, even past 250 <laughs> in, in AUM. So it really, it, it, it's really a great program because it's structured to help them learn and develop, but they're also able to get in front of real clients for them. Are you planning to support your batch of your first batch or and your next batches after they reach their goal? Yeah. So, and, and that's what I was sort of um, alluding to earlier is that we have had interest from investors that are interested in managers who actually are around 250, 300 million mm-hmm. higher. So we would like to recreate a similar program like we have now just because, you know, we've got very, very positive feedback from all the investors and, you know, having something similar and for the next uh, level so that they can graduate out of the program, then they can transition into the next one if they want to, or they can, you know, go off on their own. You know, I guess it's, I I don't know if I like to like it necessarily to, you know, going from an undergrad to graduate school to PhD level, but I think sounds like it. Realize it. Um, you know, because it's weird to say undergrad when you have people who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's It's not about age, right? It's not about age. Yeah, no, it's not about age. It's about how you're developing and where you are in the general spectrum. Because we know that emerging manager is really $2 billion or less. So we could easily create, you know, one or two more programs Mm. that captures that range. Put a note that you, you know, you found. Yeah, we'll put the notes in the podcast information. A lot of people in there sort of, I guess, in the, the, the friend request purgatory, but you know, definitely let me know. Um, you know, they can easily find us online, www.creativecapadvisors.com. If you're interested in the incubator program, you know, say www.creativecapadvisors.com backslash incubator. Um, and I would, you know, say to anyone who's going out and launching a fund, you know, it's, It's definitely a, a roller coaster, but it can be very well worth it, just like any sort of startup business. You know, it's not going to be easy. It's going to require a lot of work, a lot of footwork, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, going to meetings and meeting with people. But if you can really create value, you know, you're going to have a very exciting road. Perfect. So go to creativecapadvisors.com, find Tyra. Find Tyra on LinkedIn, message her. But before you add her, read my article about how not to cold message people on LinkedIn. 
Scotty is very careful and put a note when you send a request to Tyra that you listen to the podcast. She'll be eager to add you then and communicate with you. Thanks a lot again for this amazing conversation and I'll see you in the next podcast.